Governor, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. Happy to be on with you, doctor. Now, you mentioned a few years back that New York City was undergoing a regression, right, in terms of criminal justice, in terms of crime in the streets. Now, you know something about that. When you took command of this state, crime was certainly not in the shape that it is now. Can you draw some comparisons? How do you see that era as opposed to this one? Well, this uh, reminds me of the way it was in the early 90s before I took office. New York State, not just the city, was the most dangerous state in America. Uh, and people a year or two ago would have said that can't be possible because we are so safe. But we are just seeing a total regression. And it's, and it's, in my mind, tragic because this is something that has been tried before to treat criminals as victims as opposed to criminals. And what ultimately results is that uh, the innocent citizens who want to obey the law, the shopkeepers, the bodega owners, the people who take the subway home at night, they become the victims of this absurd uh, leftist philosophy that somehow people who break the law and commit crimes are victims of society. We tried it before. It didn't work. We're trying it again. It's not working now. Governor, do you attribute this to policing? Is it the bail structure? Is it something that you can put a finger on, or is it kind of something of everything? You can definitely put your finger on it, and but it is something of everything. I don't fault the police. I think they are having their hands tied, where if they make an arrest, uh, they're more liable to end up with some sort of a consequence than the person they arrested, even if that person had been committing a crime. So we need to change the laws. We need to change the judges. We need to change the approach uh, to bail, certainly. Um, the policies, not just in New York City under de Blasio, but in Albany under Cuomo, have been a catastrophe. And, and too many innocent victims. Back in the late 80s, early 90s, there were over 2,000 murders a year in New York City. It was down dramatically to where we were the safest big state and the safest big city in America. You need to change the laws in Albany. You need to change the policies in, in, uh, uh, in policing in New York City. And equally important, you have to change the district attorneys. When you have a district attorney who violates his or her oath of office by not upholding the laws that they have taken an oath to uphold, they should be removed. If I feel, feel uh, sound a little emotional and dramatic here, doctor, it's because I am. You know, it's, this is not brain surgery. This is not something where we haven't tried plan A and plan B, plan A failed, plan B worked. So we're going back to plan A. Uh, and if it didn't have the horrible consequences that it does, you know, I mean, you could maybe be a little more tolerant of a failed policy that is deliberately inflicted on the people of New York. But the consequences of this are too important to not get emotional and feel angry about it. What changes in specific um, would you institute in policing, in the police department? What do you see now that strikes you as particularly difficult to deal with? I think what is most difficult is the police just uh, have every incentive to not make arrests, to not proactively police. Uh, and it's not because of them, it's because of their superiors and the district attorney. I mean, take a look at, at the riots that occurred after the horrible George Floyd incident. The police really risked their lives in trying to prevent uh, violence against people and property. 
the people they arrested are getting checks. They are getting disciplined. So it's just uh, completely backwards. You break the law and then you sue the cop. The cop gets in trouble for arresting you and they're more likely to be in trouble than the criminal. And, you know, I remember a few years ago, I don't live in the city. I live uh, in the Hudson Valley. A few years ago, for one reason, I had to go into a drugstore and I saw everything locked up. And, and this was something I'd never seen before in my lifetime. And I just go, what is going on here? But it's the district attorney. You know, who's going to make an arrest for shopkeeping, shoplifting, uh, when, when the cop is going to get disciplined and the person is going to be released and never even brought up on charges? So we need to change the laws in Albany. We need to, if, if D.A. Bragg is not willing to uphold all the laws, he should be removed. And if I were governor, I would remove you know, you take an oath to uphold the laws of the state of New York, not the ones you agree with, all the laws. And and if we had a system where, and we do right now, where prosecutors pick and choose what laws they're going to enforce, you don't have a democracy. You have autocracy of one person deciding the fate of millions of New Yorkers. You know, another point of contention over the past several years has been bail. Bail has been an issue forever, right across the country. Uh, and obviously, when it comes to bail, there are issues with due process and other things. Uh, the laws surrounding bail now, uh, some would consider to be lenient. What say you? I'd say it's a catastrophe. When Cuomo ran through the no bail law, uh, no cash bail, they call it, but it's essentially no bail law. Um, what he did is send a message that uh, other than someone who commits a very violent crime, not just holding a gun to someone's head, which, uh, as my understanding, is not subject to, to bail unless someone is actually physically injured, is nonsense. And when I took office, when we were the most dangerous uh, state and city in the country, we had laws exactly like this. And we changed them. We made a much more difficult bail law. And we did. And by the way, we changed uh, the sentencing laws. We changed the bail laws, the parole laws, the probation laws. Um, and we saw an increase in the prisoner population. But then it went down because we did studies. We didn't want to lock up tons of people. We wanted to make the city safer and the state safer. And we did. And we did a, a, an analysis when someone who had committed a violent felony and a violent felony under the law doesn't have to include where someone is physical injured, uh, physically injured. When someone committed a violent felony and got out on parole, when they were rearrested and convicted uh, the second time, they had been arrested on average 12 times between the time they were released on parole and the time they were convicted of another violent felony. So when you keep those criminals behind bars, uh, separated from the public for a long time, those violent felons, uh, you are going to ultimately uh, reduce the burden on the court system because they just go through it time and time again and create dramatically safer streets. We need to get rid of the uh, the juvenile law where you can be a 17-year-old, commit a violent crime, and not even be, have a criminal record if you go through a, uh, a, a diversionary process. It used to be 16. Uh, we need to change the, uh, the, the discovery laws right now unless the police and the district attorney can get all the documents together and get all the evidence within a very limited period of time, the case is dismissed. That's not justice. That's a technicality that favors nothing but the criminal. Uh, and, you know, all of these 
horrible changes were made. They call them reforms, but they're just horrible changes were made in the name of, of racial justice. You look at who the victims are of this new crime, and they're overwhelmingly low-income minorities. They're not a, a rich white person who lives on Park Avenue and has a doorman or takes an Uber to work. It's the person who rides the subway at night, the person who works in the bodega. The victims uh, are, are the minorities that these laws were allegedly, uh, uh, changes in the laws were allegedly about protecting, and it just hasn't worked. And all you have to do is look at the Albany uh, district attorney, an African-American Democrat, very progressive. He has called for repeal of these hideous changes because he sees on the streets of Albany a, a dramatic rise in crime against African-American and low-income low residents of that city. Uh, you know, when you have two ideas that have both have been tried, one works, one doesn't, why do we go back to the one that doesn't with enormous human costs? Just to me is unfathomable, and I know the reason. The reason is ideologues are trapped in this ideology, whether it's Alvin Bragg or some of the left-wing uh, Democrats in Albany who see criminals as victims. Well, what you're going to find out is the innocent citizens become more and more of those victims. And I know I'm carrying on here. There needs much more to be done, you know, like uh, mental health. Uh, it's a horrible problem when violent, mental, mental, mentally ill people are released on the streets. My wife yesterday was in Manhattan. And she was walking up the street to go to an appointment, and a crazed person attacked the person standing next to her, screaming and yelling, terrifying that person, terrifying her. There was, it never came to actual physical violence. Uh, but a person like that takes a look and says, you know, Florida's looking awfully attractive, or maybe some suburb somewhere. I, uh, it's bad enough. The taxes are so awful. The subways are, are not working that great. Uh, we got rats everywhere. Now we have this, I'm going someplace else. So it's destructive of our city, it's destructive of our state, and most importantly, it's destructive of the lives of those who are victimized. Governor Patterson, who came some time after you, had discussed a little while ago the three strikes law and how perhaps we should consider bringing back something like that. Uh, Governor, you know the pros and cons about three strikes, and you know all the arguments that have been made. What is your position on that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, how many times are you going to let someone be convicted of a felony and treat them as a victim of society? You know, it's just, uh, there's no question that we need uh, uh, much tougher parole laws and much tougher sentencing laws. And you commit and get convicted. By the way, if you've been convicted three times, you've probably committed way over a dozen violent felonies. Uh, then you deserve uh, to spend a long time in jail, separated from the people you want to prey on. Now, all of you know, this I, I, I apologize for being so wishy-washy and indecisive in my answers because, you know, as a politician, I always say on the one hand this and on the one other hand that, but uh, I'm kidding here. On this, you get my passion up when you talk about how people are being victimized. Please don't apologize. But a lot of this stuff, you know, really came to the forefront during COVID, right? When folks were locked up in their homes for an extended period of time, uh, whether for good or for bad, and crime seemed to be on everybody's mind. What impact do you think COVID had on this problem in New York City and beyond? Uh, I think COVID, uh, not so much COVID as the lockdowns and the, and the uh, home school, you know, schooling remotely, 
has had a horrible impact, uh, not just on New York, but on the country. And uh, but in particular in New York, you know, I still work uh, for a firm in New York City. And I, I'm one of these crazy old guys who still goes to work and I show up in the office and there's nobody there. Uh, and and uh, shortly after we were allowed to go back to work, I go in the work and, and the people you saw on the street were those looking to prey on someone. They are either those who should have been in a mental health facility or those who had gotten out of jail. And I have friends who just said, you know, I'm not going to go back to work. You know, I mean, I like the camaraderie. I like the ability to share ideas in person, but it's not worth it when this is what's happening on the streets. And uh, I think it did uh, create serious problems, certainly for our youth who lost essentially two years of education. And you talk to non-ideological teachers about their kids and where they should be and where they are. And it's just very sad. So, so it's a it's a huge, huge problem that hopefully is behind us. The problem is not behind us. The, the What caused the problem is behind us. Now we have to deal with the consequences. Governor, what is your position on the current migrant crisis that Mayor Adams is having such difficulty dealing with uh, around the city? and the state, uh, but it's a catastrophe for the country. You know, we have maybe 110,000 illegal migrants here now. Texas has millions. And until they came here, we were looking at, oh, the Texas governor is awful. He's trying to control the border. You know, what a horrible person he must be. He doesn't care about people. And then we get 110,000 as opposed to two or three million. And we go, this is impossible. We can't deal with this. We're going to, we're throwing our hands up. Um, I think, first of all, they should sue Biden, tell him his actions are having hideous consequences, and he is failing in his, in his obligation to uphold the laws and protect the border is one of those laws. I also think they should re, um, completely ignore the, the right to shelter decision that was came, I guess, I think in the 80s, the 70s or 80s. And it was involving a handful of homeless on the streets of New York, not 100,000 illegal migrants who are sent here uh, because they crossed the border illegally. Uh, so I don't think New York does still have a legal obligation to right for right to shelter. Um, and I would declare a state of emergency uh, and and take uh, tremendous action to, for example, uh, turn back buses at the Port Authority of New York. We're in a state of emergency. We're not going to take them, send them back where they came from. Uh, and I just think passivity in the face of a crisis, whether it's uh, uh, a criminal justice crisis, an economic crisis, or now the migrant crisis, Governor, you've been very active in relief efforts in my birth country of Ukraine. Can you tell me um, what you've seen over there and how you think our administration here is handling uh, that devastating turn of events? You know, first, uh, I'm not Ukrainian. You know, I've been there six times since the war started. But my grandparents came from northeastern Hungary near the Ukrainian border, and my grandparents never liked Ukrainians. They, they, they were opponents on the border, and there's still ethnic minority of Hungarians living in Ukraine. And in fact, my first trip into Ukraine after the war, 
we were taking in medical supplies and food and, and uh, clothing and other things literally five or six days after the war started. And the State Department said, you can't go. No, you can't. We went anyway, because I, I thought there'd be this huge humanitarian need, and there was. And when I first got there, one of the big Ukrainian government leaders from Kiev came, uh, and I introduced myself, and he goes, oh, we know who you are. And the reason was I had been in that part of Ukraine before, agitating on the part of the Hungarian minority for human rights in the face of language laws that were trying to compel uh, only Ukrainian on the Hungarian minority. So they were very suspicious of me. Um, but I said, hey, there's a war. Uh, there's an existential threat to the existence of Ukraine. And when things like that happen, you set aside anything that might divide you uh, in more peaceful times. And since I've been there, since I've become good friends with these government officials, they're very happy to see me and to work with me. But is unbelievable spirit. I have never as much. Just to give you one example. We went to school that was converted into a shelter for refugees from the East, and they were all women and children. And you talk to the mothers, and they go, uh, and we'd ask, what do you need? And the kids had nothing. You know, they're sleeping on the floor of the gym or on a cot. Um, and I asked them, what, what do we need for your family, for your kids, for here? Nothing. We don't need anything. Get us weapons. Get us planes. Get us equipment for my brother who's fighting back east or my husband who's fighting back east or my father who's still there. Uh, and the spirit is unbelievable. The humanitarian need is enormous. It's not even close to being met. And that's why we've made these trips, taking in heaters, generators, housing units, everything else. And we'll continue to do that. But I think the Biden administration has been good in its response. And it's hard for me to say that because I don't think President Biden has been a good president, but I think he has slowly uh, understood that this is good against evil and that this is not just Ukraine against Russia. It's uh, Russia and its friends like Iran, North Korea and China um, uh, against people who believe in the rule of law and the right to live in freedom. And we have an obligation to defend those who want to live in freedom. Uh, but the weapons, he's always said, we're not going to send HIMARS. And then four months later, we do. We're not going to send Abrams. A year later, we, we will. We're not going to send F-16s. It's going to provoke nuclear war. Now we're in the process of sending F-16s. So I think it has been way late. Had Ukraine gotten the equipment that we've dribbled into them earlier, I think they would have been much more successful in their counteroffensive because Russia wouldn't have had the time to build these massive defensives. But Biden has kept the United States there helping, uh, has worked with our NATO allies to do that. And for that, I give him credit. One thing I think he needs to do is address the American people and explain why we are there and what our goal is. Uh, he hasn't done that yet. And just like the military supplies have been dribbled in, um, he needs to make the case to the American people. He doesn't need to make it to me. But there are a great many people who say, why are we sending billions of dollars? Why, are we getting ourselves immersed in another 20-year war to build democracy? And that's not the case, but he needs to lay out to the American people why it's not the case, why this is so much, it's so different and so important, uh, and what his goals are going forward. That hasn't happened yet. So I give him a, a B, uh, but in the time of war, or a B minus, in the time of war, you need A leadership. The million dollar question in the world is how will this all end? 
you've been in politics for many, many years. What is your opinion on that? How do you see this going forward? I, I think it has to end. Uh, it's not going to land in a Russian victory. Uh, that is, if you've been to Ukraine, you know that they will fight to the last person. And if it's the last friends on the Polish border, they're not going to ever give up. So Russia's not going to win. But I think it's also unrealistic to think that Ukraine's going to have the capability of, to push Russia out of all of Ukraine, uh, the part that it has occupied, much of it since 2014 when we did nothing uh, except send stocks when Russia invaded the first time. Um, so I think at the end, there has to be some sort of a settlement, not a military victory by either side. But I don't think that settlement can occur until Ukraine is able to achieve sufficient success that Putin understands it's in his interest to settle this case and abandon his efforts to uh, take and, and annex so much of Ukraine. I don't think that we're there yet. Uh, uh, and I don't know if we will get there. I certainly hope so, because otherwise it's just going to be World War One all over again, where you have a war of attrition going on for years with hundreds of thousands of people tragically losing their lives. Governor, I want to talk to you a bit about Donald Trump. Now, right now, he is under indictment in four different jurisdictions. Um, putting aside the legal issues, putting aside his guilt or his innocence, putting aside whether he'll be convicted or acquitted or found liable in the civil cases, what impact is the perception that we politicize the criminal justice system have on the impact of the American people? That, I think that's a very important question. And first, let me say, I think Donald Trump is unfit to be president of anywhere, certainly not the United States. And um, I think he has made it plain, uh, not just uh, January 6th, but I mean, even recently calling for the prosecution and death penalty for General Milley and other just absurd statements that makes it plain to me the man is unfit to be president of the United States. Having said that, I do think much of these prosecutions are largely political. Certainly Bragg's prosecution in New York City, any legal person of integrity from the far left to the far right knows it's complete nonsense uh, and just a, a total abuse of prosecutorial discretion. Some of the other cases, I think, are really stretching to find a crime. There's a difference between acting in a morally reprehensible way and committing something that is a violation of the criminal laws. And I think a lot of the charges are the first. They are morally reprehensible and condemnable, but don't violate the criminal laws as I see it. Um, and I think it has created some real concern about the politicization of the Justice Department. It's not just that. I think there have been so many examples. Uh, I think the Hunter Biden case is another one where, I mean, they had a settlement deal that had one judge not said, hey, wait a second, I can't sign off on this, where the Justice Department was basically going to let him walk free for having gotten millions of dollars from Burisma, a corrupt Ukrainian company, and other overseas interests paying no taxes on it, making no declaration of it, having no reason for having received those payments. And he was going to get essentially to walk away with nothing. Uh, so between that 
And in some of what I see as political prosecutions of Trump, I think really has damaged the American people's confidence that we have a truly neutral uh, system of justice. And that is absolutely essential. And that's tragic. And again, I don't want to in any way be defending Donald Trump because his actions, the vast majority of them are indefensible. Uh, and he's not fit to be president. But uh, but that doesn't mean that the actions, so many of them, of the Justice Department since Biden has become president, haven't, in my mind, really compromised people's confidence in the integrity of that system. You mentioned a few minutes ago the words prosecutorial discretion. In my view, the two most important words in our justice system. What can be done, if anything should be done, to deal with lack of oversight over prosecutors on the state level and beyond um, to avoid things like this that, again, irrespective of what the result will be, the perception is, is tough to swallow. Well, it's, it, it's on both sides. And, and it comes down to, uh, I think, comes down to the executive. Uh, you know, the prosecutors are elected. They are independent prosecutors. But when you take an oath of office, the, the, at least in New York, the governor has the authority to remove that person. And when I was governor, I removed the Bronx inter, uh, district attorney from his uh, whole category cases because he said flat out, I'm never going to prosecute those cases because they disagree with the law. All right, then I'm going to put a remove him from those cases and put in, uh, in place a prosecutor at will. And I remember back, you know, seven or eight years ago, that there were a number of officials in, I think it was either Tennessee or Kentucky, who refused to conduct uh, um, gay marriages uh, because it violated their religious belief. I would remove them as well, because you can't put your religion above the law. Uh, you can't put your ideology, you can't put your religion, regardless of which side it brings you down on, you take an oath to uphold the laws. And if you violate that oath, it's up to the person, the executive, to, to enforce that person's uh, obligation to, to uphold that law. So, so you know, I don't think you create an independent group to monitor district attorneys. I think the odds of that being non-political are pretty much close to zero. Most of these so-called non-partisan oversight groups lean politically, or rather lurch politically one way or the other and hide behind their alleged fairness so I think it comes down to the elected officials in the first instance, the district attorney. And if they're not doing the job, the governor, both of whom have taken office, the oath to uphold the law. Governor, I'll let you go on this. Back to New York City. If you were governor today, if you were mayor today, what immediate changes would you put in place to deal with some of these criminal justice issues that you've been describing? Uh, I... I I know exactly what I did. First of all, I'd call a special, well, I, I would immediately put in place at least a dozen proposed laws that would completely change the criminal justice system in New York to not just back to where it was when we had the safest city and state in the country, uh, but you learn from what's happened since then. So yes, largely that, but uh, applying what we have learned since then. And uh, they would get passed uh, because my last year in office, I won a lawsuit that uh, where the governor of New York State has the enormous authority to change the law by language in the budget. And the legislature has no choice but to either adopt those changes or remove uh, the entire appropriation. 
including the criminal justice appropriation. So that's how Cuomo got the Nobel th law through. That's how I would repeal that Nobel law. So I would do that. Uh, I would send a strong message that the police are our friends and we're gonna have an administration that is behind uh, those police. I would send a notice to every single district attorney in the state, shoplifting is a crime. If you are unprepared to enforce that law and you have set your own standard, whether it's 500 or $1,000 or $2,000, you gotta let them go otherwise, I'm gonna remove you and appoint a special prosecutor to deal with shoplifting in every community where the district attorney won't uphold the law. Uh, I'd I look at Bragg. He sent out that memo after he got elected in writing saying the category of uh, offenses where he would not seek uh, incarceration. I'd, I'd sit him down and say, do you stand by this letter? In which case, we're going to have to have someone else prosecute these cases unless you're prepared to uphold what the law says. So th there's a lot that could be done right away. Um, uh, Mayor Adams has a harder time because he can't change the law uh, in Albany, and he doesn't have authority over the district attorneys the way the governor does. But he, too, could send a message to the police and put in place diff different, uh, work with his commissioner to put in place different tactics with the police. Tell him, for example, arrest a shoplifter. Take him, you know, and, and, uh, and then we will push to, to make sure they're prosecuted. Uh, I would look at the mental health issue and see what changes in the mental health law are necessary to get the violently mentally ill, the obviously disruptive to us mentally ill, the people who would push someone in front of a subway to get them in a secure facility where they get treatment instead of having it out on the street where they pose a threat. So uh, it's just sad to me that so much could be done uh, and should be done but it's not being done. Governor. Now, I, now I, would hope, I would hope I provoked half your class to throw something at the screen, uh, or maybe 80% of the class to throw things at the screen or boo me. Uh, but part of, part of having a valid democracy and an open mind is listening to ideas you might not agree with. And I believe strongly everything I said I'd be happy to sit down with someone who disagreed with everything I, I strongly, I, I just said, because when, you, when you're sure you're right, you've got problems. Governor, I not only thank you for your service, I thank you for your time, your insight. Um, I know you're a busy man and I appreciate the effort. Well, thank you so much. It was, it was fun, man. Thank you for having me, Don. Take care.